High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a dialectical conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Dialectical. That's not a common word. It sounds kind of like diabolical, but that's a bad thing. Dialectical, according to the dictionary, means concerned with or acting through opposing forces. Opposites. How do opposites work together, especially when it comes to therapy? And we're going to soon learn much more about that. I've learned from my patients and people living in recovery that drugs fill a hole or void in the heart. Drugs help cover emotional pain. They work temporarily, but then addiction takes over, hijacks the brain, and things become much worse, worse emotionally, physically, and socially. Drugs hijack the brain's dopamine, a neurotransmitter that we need like we need oxygen and water. A man in recovery recently shared his journey with me and confessed that it was after he became sober and off methamphetamine that he felt suicidal. He wondered why. And I thought about it. He got rid of the methamphetamine. His brain was no longer hijacked, but the hole in his heart was now fully exposed. That's why he felt suicidal. He needed to learn to heal that hole in his heart, which is not easy, but it's possible. There are over 20 million people in recovery and they are living proof that hope is possible. Recovery is possible. In the emergency department, I see people at their very worst in terms of drugs, and I tell them, if they're able to listen, that this is not who they are. Their brain is hijacked by drugs. I give them hope when they let me that they can have a bright future with some investment in themselves, and they're worth it. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Love. Thank you so much for taking my question today. My name is Kyla Imran, and I'm an emergency department nurse here in the city of San Diego. I'm also a longtime listener of your podcast and was super excited to meet you in person at the hospital. I'm really interested in the issue of addiction, and I just really like listening to podcasts. You showcase so many different aspects of the problem, even the more controversial ones that a lot of people in our profession still aren't willing to discuss. My question is about addiction treatment. As a nurse, I give a lot of medications to treat both acute and chronic conditions, whether they are more psychologically or medically related. However, that doesn't always address the root problem. Are there therapies for substance use disorder and addiction that do not involve medication like there are for anxiety or depression? Thank you so much for taking my question and everything that you do to educate and advocate for our community. Thank you, Kyla, for your question. And I was so excited to meet a podcast fan right in the emergency department. You made my day. For my audience, my real job is working on the front lines. The podcast is my fun and educational and advocacy hobby where I talk to amazing people who teach me so much. Kyla, to answer your question, I invited Dr. Laura Petrasik. She's a clinical psychologist certified in DBT therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, and she is living in recovery herself. 
She is an author of the book, The Anger Workbook for Women and the DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction. To learn more about Dr. Laura Petrasic and her books, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Laura Petrasic, welcome to High Truths. Thanks, Renee. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to learn about uh, dialectical therapy, but first, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your journey and how you became a specialist um, in this field. So uh, it started quite a while ago, 46 years ago. I don't know if I chose this field or it chose me, probably both. Um, I came into rehab when I was 17 and um, did a little bit more research. And then at 19, came back into the rooms, knew what I needed to do, started college for alcoholism counselor, and just kept going up. You know, school became my drug of choice, so I got my associate's degree, bachelor's, master's in social work, doctorate in clinical psychology, and I've primarily been working in the field of alcohol and drug addiction for most of my career. So 17 years old, that's that's so young to have, even, and thinking that it's way back when that you're diagnosed with uh, alcohol addiction. Looking back and knowing what you know now about yourself and the disease of addiction, did you have a family history, risk factors, or, or you think a gene for alcoholism? What do you think? So my family is pickled in alcoholism. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily that I had an epiphany. I actually came into rehab through uh, the psychiatric ward. I had tried to commit suicide when I was 17, and they sent me to an adolescent psych ward. And then uh, I filled out, they had me do an alcohol and drug history. And then they said, you know, we think you definitely have a problem. And they had some from AA come talk to me. And um, I read that in your in your book that you had someone, and what year was that? Uh, 74. 1974, yeah. you're in a hospital, and part of your treatment is to have someone from AA come treat to you. And I thought, wow, we were smart in those <laughs> days. I wish we had that today. I know. Well, I feel very fortunate. You know, I was in Minneapolis, and they are so far ahead of the curve, even today, as far as I'm concerned with alcohol and drug treatment. You know, Hazleton is there, uh, the birthplace of Hazleton. Um, it's a very spiritual place, uh, very steeped in uh, Native American history. Um, so yes, I feel very fortunate that, you know, if this was to happen, that it happened where it did. So I got the right help. Um, and she, you know, I said, I don't know. I don't, think so she goes look why don't you just try it for a year and if you don't like it you could always have your misery refunded and I thought well that's good <laughs> I could do that um my parents weren't really you know they had their own alcohol issues alcohol use issues and I think it threatened them for me to go to rehab and also though back then the rehabs were kind of they were like hardcore drug treatment, like people who are shooting up and then alcohol places, which mainly were older people, older than 17, you know, like 30s, 40s. So there wasn't really a space for me or it didn't look like it. So I think that's part of the reason they said no. They wanted me to go back home or go to a different school. But I just knew that I would probably try to commit suicide, but this time I wouldn't, I would succeed. So I just knew I couldn't go home and they didn't understand that. But luckily this woman said, look, I could help you go through the emancipation process and then you could sign yourself in rehab. So that's what I did. And wow. So usually use emancipation to sign people out of something. You used it to sign yourself into something. Yes, I did. Yeah. So, and it was the best decision I ever made. I loved treatment. It was the first time I felt like this is what a family is supposed to be. Um, it was, it just seemed like heaven. It was fantastic. And your treatment was for mental health and alcohol use disorder? 
primarily alcohol use disorder, not so much mental health. Um, yeah. So, and the mental health didn't really, and this happens, I think, as you know, um, Renit, that a lot of people, once they put down the alcohol drugs, then the mental health stuff comes up um, or some, you know, uh, we don't really have a, a a clear handle on what's causing what or what's happening because my manic break wasn't until I was three years sober. So the mental health uh, didn't really, I didn't really hit a bottom with that, even though for me at age 17, it was, but then I hear I am stone cold, sober, clean, and still having major mental health. Then I know, okay, this is totally separate from alcohol and drugs. Um, I, I do see that not with mania, but depression that after Drugs work to fill a hole in your heart and to cover that up. And once you stop using drugs, you're exposed to that pain or trauma that you have and you have to deal with it. And I've had people tell me that that I'm sober now. Why am I depressed and suicidal? And I think because you still have things to deal with. Right. Yes, of course. Um, so I have a question for you from Kyla Imran. She's an emergency nurse, and she um, uses medications, as we do in emergency medicine, for all sorts of ailments. But she has a question about treatment for substance use disorder and treatment um, without medications. Like there's treatment for depression and anxiety without medications. Sometimes people need them. I'm not saying that they don't, but what are the options? And, and this is really where your specialty comes in. Well, I think, so her name's Kaylin? Uh, um, her name is Kyla. Oh, Kyla, sorry. Um, I think that we have to do a very thorough history, which I'm sure they do, or she does with someone, if she's an ER nurse. And as you were talking about earlier, I mean, there is a high genetic component to, for me, for both my anti bipolar disorder both my parents, well, definitely my mom, maybe my dad too, alcoholic, alcoholism all over my family. So I had the genetic gene, that's for sure. And also for mental illness um, or for having a mental illness. And yes, I think evidence-based therapies are really helpful for depression without taking meds, such as cognitive behavioral therapy and also dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, but I think it's important to, you know, make sure, like I was just hanging on by my fingertips for those three years, you know, and I don't think recovery means you should have to hang on by your fingertips to to get through each day. You know, I try to explain to clients if they're ambivalent about medication that a lot of times it just helps the bottom from going lower. Like at least it gives you a foundation to work from instead of just using all your energy to hang on and make it through the day. Hey, you get treated for that anxiety or depression with some type of uh, psychotropic medication and then put more energy into the recovery um, or working on those symptoms. And then we can remove for most people uh, the medication. Some people know that that needs, that's part of their treatment just to stay on it. But other people, I feel once they gain a lot of insight and skills um, and use them, they're able to level off and titrate down off their medication. Right. Of course. And there's no one size fits all for anything, for mental health, uh, for drugs, uh, or for diabetes. But dialectical behavioral therapy, I remember like putting that into my slides as far as options for substance use disorder, but never really understanding what that means. What does what does DBT mean? What does the word dialectical mean? So dialectical means both and holding opposite sides of an issue, but not either or or all or nothing. But Dr. Linehan uses the term or terms both and to be all inclusive. So one hand could be I have an alcohol use disorder. And then the other side of that tightrope, so to speak, is and I am receiving, can receive treatment for it. Or one side could be I feel very anxious and depressed and the other side could be but I am uh, taking the steps getting the treatment I need to get help 
So it's kind of involving both. Or um, Brene Brown talks about uh, the DBT, the dialectic being a very tenuous kind of tightrope or or thread, as it were. Um, But then there's the both sides of it, meaning um, another example I used in my book is we're going through this horrible uh, lockdown and pandemic. And then the other side, I know that we'll get through this one day at a time. So what is what is DBT? What does that mean? Now we, we understand it's two different opposites, but what is it actually? So dialectical behavioral therapy is an evidence-based therapy, and it's a, a three-pronged therapy, meaning the first part is mindfulness and teaching mindfulness skills. The second part is cognitive behavioral therapy and teaching cognitive behavioral skills, also having clients keep a thought record. And then the last part is the dialectic, you know, teaching clients how to hold both. Because a lot of times people in recovery are kind of all or nothing or either or. So I'm always going to feel this way or I'm never going to get better or the situation never changes. And the dialectic looking at, well, I hear you feel like you're never going to get better, but, you know, change is inevitable. Um, The only thing constant is change. So you will get through this or this will change this situation or you will change. Um, And kind of offering hope in that regard to clients. And I noticed, again, in in your book, you talk about changing the way you think, the negative thinking, like, I'm never going to get better. This is terrible. Um, You know, I'm a bad person. I hate myself. That negative thinking um, and behaviors associated with that negative thinking, changing that into positive outcomes. Can you give us some examples? I think that that's one of the the key things. So part of it, the first step is for a client and myself when I went through the DBT program is gaining awareness. So I wasn't really that aware of how negative I was or uh, about myself um, or my negative thoughts, um, my uh, negative thought patterns. And so they have uh, one thing I love about DBT is they're big on homework. Like you do a homework assignment every week and I always give clients a homework assignment, even before going through DBT. I think it's very helpful because you need to practice. So the first step is awareness. Okay, let's write down these thoughts and then let's challenge them. Okay, so I'm a horrible person. What's the challenge? Well, you know, am I really? I mean, would uh, your close friend or daughter say that? No. So what? where is that coming from? And maybe you don't know where, and that's okay. You don't have to know where to still be able to change it. Um, You could just change a thought. Sometimes I make mistakes, but that doesn't make me a horrible person. Like put it more into into a, a more realistic perspective instead of this globalization of I'm horrible or you're horrible or, you know, to, to really... I use drugs and I don't want to use... I mean, I use drugs. I'm a terrible person. That's not yeah. true. You're you're a wonderful, beautiful person, but there is something that you may want to change. Yeah. And you have a substance use disorder that doesn't make you a horrible person. You may make... Some of the decisions you've made maybe weren't the best, but it still doesn't make you a horrible person. That is more of behaviors. That's different than who you are as a whole, as a person. Right. So that's good. And then in your book, I noticed you have different modules. Can you explain that? Is that, is that the, is that just your modules or is that part of um, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy? So uh, no, these are um, Dr. Linehan's modules. So there's four different modules. There's um, one that deals with distress tolerance skills. Another module Uh, teaches interpersonal effectiveness skills. Another module deals with mindfulness skills or addresses that. And uh, the last module deals with 
effectiveness in terms of your behavior, you know, to a lot of times asking clients during the day, is this effective? No. Or yes. Or let me just even think about it or ask someone, you know, or bring it to a therapist or have them bring it to me. Um, but a lot of times our behaviors, uh, especially, you know, people who are alcohol recovering from alcohol and drug addiction, our behaviors aren't effective, but we don't really see that. We kind of redouble our efforts if they're not effective and say, oh, this isn't working. I'm going to try 10 times harder. <laughs> and then it's still not effective. So DBT also has you look at, all right, this isn't working. So, you know, our AA, they have the saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. In DBT, we would call that an ineffective behavior. So what could be, what's an effective behavior? Let's try something else. Right. Does that also mean like keep using and using and using because you're addicted um, and that's ineffective? Or does that understanding that that's a, you know, the, the brain disorder that we're trying to fix? Well, no. So that's, I would put it in the opposite frame, meaning my using is not effective. It's not working. I still feel like crap, even after I use, or maybe I feel good for like half hour or whatever. But when I come down off of the alcohol or drug or whatever it is, I feel bad. I feel my life's still the same. Nothing's changed. So that's not effective. Using alcohol or drugs to, like you were talking about old uh, earlier, um, to fill that hole isn't effective or to... Um, try to change something in our environment, ourselves. Does does that mean people have to be able to have the insight to see that? Because um, I'm I'm working a little bit downstream when when in the emergency department, for example, people have a really bad disease and um, they have denial of that disease. Oh yeah, right. Like no, I'm fine. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, well, but you're in the ER, so it can't be that fine. <laughs> but yeah, but they don't have the ins- but they don't have this insight. How, are you able to break through that? Well, denial is challenging, right? Denial is part of the disease. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a disease that says we don't have a disease. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's challenging to break through. Um, I haven't. Well, I'll talk address that first. Um, so being in the ER, I would sometimes I would say to a client. Okay, is this where you planned on uh, ending up today? That sounds unmanageable to me because I don't think you planned on ending up in the ER. So that tells me your life is unmanageable. And let's look at the history. Oh, you've ended up in jail and ER here, there, and everywhere. But to me, that sounds like your life's unmanageable and that you're powerless over the substances you're using. Um, So using motivational interviewing is helpful. It it doesn't necessarily like, you know, break through the first day or something, but so those are some skills I would use, motivational interviewing, um, also looking at the history and talking about this is not, is this really effective? I don't think so. Is this where you want to be in your life? Um, or is this how you manage it, imagined your life to end up? Um, and this is where it's also helpful to have family involved to give their feedback and and uh perspective because a lot of times the person themselves yeah they don't see it but when someone says oh you know you didn't pick up your son you know uh 50 of the time last year because you were too high that really made him sad or you know something like that yeah i um Dr. Marta DeForte, she's a psychiatrist in United Kingdom, and she used a technique that I thought was insightful. She'll videotape um, patients, and she usually treats people with a cannabis use disorder, and they'll say, oh, no, no, I play my drums better when I'm high, and it's like, okay, let's videotape you <laughs> when you're playing, when you're high, and when you're not, and then you judge yourself, um, and you could you could see yourself that way. I thought that was very Oh, yeah, definitely. I actually remember in treatment, they used to take pictures of us before and then after. And it was striking. But I think doing a video, like doing a video when they come in the ER, 
and then saying, I wish I could do that. We can't do that uh, legally, right. but I wish I could. I always think I'm going to videotape how you're behaving now. And this is your discharge instructions are just to watch it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just watch yourself. I think that would be great. Yeah, I wish I could do that. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But, but, um, but it's a videotape is a great tool. You know, it's a great tool for, uh, you know, therapists who are in the beginning of training uh, so much more so than just verbal feedback. Yeah. Because um, you could actually see what's happening and, and help them to break through their own blocks as the video would help a client break through their own blocks. But I love that idea. Yeah. So DBT, how does that differ from other forms of therapy? How is that different than uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or other type of talk therapy or something else? So DBT, well, when they were first doing their research, uh, Dr. Lyahan and her colleagues with women who have borderline personality disorder, they found that cognitive behavioral therapy wasn't enough that they still were, you know, acting out in destructive ways. They still, uh, the suicide uh, attempts were still high or unfortunately completion. Um, so then they looked at just what else can we add? And then they added some Buddhism, mindfulness, and then adding the dialectics. So realizing, you know, we need a lot more tools with people who have, not just borderline, but people who suffer from emotional dysregulation, which I think most alcohol and drug addicts do, or alcohol use and substance use disorders. And that's why I think it's a great therapy for alcohol and substance use, because it, I think there's uh, there's like 200 skills that are in DBT to teach clients. So even if you just have one homework assignment a week, you know, that would be, I don't know, four years. You usually get more than one a week. Um, and if they're in an intensive program like I was, you get like three a day or something. But it's, there's just so many options. And Linehan uses acronyms. I kind of like that because I love to use acronyms. It helps you remember. So when you're in this state of, ah, you know, oh, the stop skill. Okay, I got to stop everything. Okay, take a step back. What's my temperature? What am I, you know, feeling? Heart rate, face flushed. Let me just observe what's happening. Then the P, let me proceed mindfully. Also, just simple tools like that are really helpful. Um, she has crisis intervention skills, and then that's a small part. The rest are more day-to-day -day living uh, how to be more effective in our relationships and, and with ourselves. So you you mentioned borderline personality disorder, that active behavioral therapy by itself is not enough. For substance use disorder, why is this a real good therapy for substance use disorder? I think it's really a good therapy for substance use disorder because, again, like I was stating earlier, there's so many more tools to offer someone um, you know, uh, being in AA myself for like 46 years, the number of tools available are, I don't know, 20. I mean, it's very limited. And I mean, this is a program that was designed 80 years ago. We've learned a, a lot in the field of psychology since then, or alcohol use. So like in AA, they're, they have your angry pause, and that's it. There's no other tool. That's basically it, which isn't a bad tool, but it's only one, you know, and then there's other tools, but it's not a, a lot to have some put in a toolbox and uh, or when something's like happening right away um, to be able to use a tool and think on your feet, so to speak. So it, uh, what's the advantage? It, 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 it adds a lot. It enhances one recovery, I feel. It gives someone a lot more tools. It also gets away, you know, a lot of people are turned off by the God stuff for higher power. It doesn't work for them. And so DBT really, you know, they have mindfulness, but which uh, isn't necessarily about a higher power, but 
you know, going into yourself and trying to connect with uh, your spiritual side. Um, but that's really helpful too, because that that turns off people. We don't want to have someone come in the door. They see the steps. I'm like, oh, forget this is not for me. Right, right. Yeah. It's for some people, but 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 again, it's not again yeah. not for not for everyone. So let's talk some of those tools that I, I think I read some of them that I, I thought were very much inspiring, even to someone who doesn't have a substance disorder or a mental health disorder. But like one of the things I read is radical acceptance. And you say that you have a picture of yourself as a kid at, at your nightstand and, and you say nice things to that, your little kid. That really, that struck me. So sweet, so true. And like, really, would you treat your, like you always, you know, when you're an adult or, you know, going through something, you don't like yourself, but look at this cute little kid. That's you. How would you, what would you say to that person? I love that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's a way because, unfortunately, a lot of people that call it substance use disorder, their inner critic is alive and well and working overtime. So having uh, either a sponsor or a client find that picture or find a picture put by the nightstand is a way to build compassion, a compassionate relationship with ourselves. There's a psychologist, uh, Dr. Kristen Nev, who her whole research over the past 30 years has been about self-compassion. And unfortunately, in our society, self-compassion gets a very bad rap because it's looked as uh, self-pity or self-indulgent, um, where, where it really is more just being nice to yourself. Like, would you talk to a a four-year-old, the way you're talking to yourself now? No. Um, and so... Right. I'm thinking about so it, You say, how many times you say, oh, I hate myself. And you say, oh, would you say that to the cute little kid? Like, yeah. I hate you? No. You wouldn't just say, I hate you to a little kid. Yeah. And, you know, to... DBT says you could change that train of thought right away. Oh, stop. I don't hate myself. I... You know, I don't like when I do this certain behavior. So to be more specific and that you can stop it in midstream. And like I was stating earlier, building awareness is a huge step of DBT. Oh, I'm in it. I'm in this spiral again. Okay, what can I use to stop this? And yeah, radical acceptance is accepting how the situation is right here, right now. So it doesn't mean you're uh, resigned to it, like, oops. Or it also doesn't mean you're uh, okay with it, like that you're um, happy with it, but it's more like this is how it is. Right. And self-love, like you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. But for example, if... Uh, as a parent, if you're struggling with a, a child who has or adolescent who has a substance use disorder, you know, it doesn't mean you just throw up your hands and say, forget it. But, OK, I accept they have this alcohol or substance use disorder. Now, what can we do next? Instead of, you know, like you were talking about earlier too, the denial, because sometimes parents are very much in denial. Or at a loss of what to do. Yes, both or both. Yeah. yeah. I'd say a lot of times they're at a loss. And that's yeah. when they usually come to seek treatment, yeah. not just for their kid, but for themselves too. Like, well, I don't know what to do. Right. Like during the pandemic. Oh, wow. I couldn't believe how many families were. Died of a drive, you know, my phone was ringing off the hook. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people in, yeah. in uh, heart, heart distress. Breaking. And yes. and with more drugs available, and with drugs being normalized, I am sure your phone will be uh, ringing off the hook. <laughs> well, it's um, interesting you bring that up. That would be a whole other topic someday. But I really, I don't know. I take issue with cannabis and all all these drugs that now are becoming legal to be used for therapy. I 
don't think it's the best way to go. This is a place to talk about that, Dr. Patrysek. This is the show because there is a movement to normalize drug use. And all that does is bring me and you more business. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah. Uh, like I have a colleague who stated he was growing a psilocybin farm. I was like, what? He yeah. goes, yeah, that's my main form of therapy now. I'm like, what happened to FDA approved drugs? Oh, yeah. I know. No, now it's in your backyard. Right. And, uh, you know, to me. And it's just shut your backyard. It's that this is causing harm on the individual and on our society. Those, yeah, the yeah. things that you're buying on Amazon, they're heavy metals. There are, you know, lots of contaminants in them. There, yes, nobody yes. is monitoring or regulating what is bought on the internet or from your. Mm -hmm friend's farm yeah, um yeah. and uh and again we we as a society experience that and they're creating more mental health cases right we're yes, um, yes. so yeah. it yeah it is sad especially with young people who are getting into um into cannabis you mentioned that tell us about your experience with that you know especially parents who uh, call you and their kids get into marijuana what what hope can you give them well the first thing so the type of therapy I do I have the whole family in for the first session and I have them all together and then for like 10 minutes a piece so all together the first half 10 minutes a piece the second half to get everyone's point of view and what they see as the problem is and then the next session would be the parents only, the third session, the adolescent. And then I do a combination of dyads and the family together. And what I'm trying to work with or what I'm working with is first an awareness, especially with the kid, the son or daughter, um, and what's happening. And to give, you know, the parents give feedback like doing an intervention, this is what has happened. You know, it's almost like their videotape. Um, it's funny though, when you mentioned the videotape, actually one parent did do a videotape of, of their kid and showed it, you know, and they're getting up at four in the afternoon and saying, okay, I'm ready for the day. And they're like, the day school's over. Oh, okay, well, do what, uh, no, all they did was go get high. So, um, they're a, they're addicted, right? They don't realize that they're addicted because I bet if you ask your patients, can you quit? They'll say, oh, yeah, I could quit, but they can't. Yeah. Sometimes they say they could quit and um, using then some also some motivational interviewing, say, okay, we'll do it your way first. Meaning, okay, so you could quit. I want you to keep a journal of if you picked up a drink or drug that day, what you were feeling, what happened. And then if you do pick up, then the agreement is outpatient treatment, or no, the agreement is going to a meeting. And then if you're still picking up, outpatient treatment. So I keep um, kind of upping the level of care. Mm -hmm. uh, so I won't start right away with rehab unless someone is really like totally ready, because sometimes people are on their knees, they're ready. But if they're very ambivalent or don't feel they have a problem, then taking it step by step, because if, if I, you know, go to uh, suggest rehab or nothing, I'll lose that client. Right. Yeah. I also explain, so we see a lot of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome in the emergency department. And these are people who, this doesn't happen overnight. These are people who have been using a uh, high potency for, for years usually. And then I ask them, Can, are you able to quit? And they all, they all say, oh, yeah, no problem. I said, well, you know, just so you know, because at this point, they have a cannabis use disorder. I'll say, um, just I want you to understand what withdrawal feels like. And, and, and it's not like alcohol withdrawal with shakes or opioid withdrawal. It, it's more like cigarette withdrawals where you'll feel anxious, you'll have a headache, you'll have insomnia. And then I see that open up that now they're listening. And I said, well, that should last about two weeks, you know, we could treat symptoms of that. But if you're patient with that, and or, or the other thing I say, try to give your body a cleanse. Let's see, let's see if you could do without it and see how you feel. And what are they, what's the response there? Well, I, they listen, 
So I used to say you have cannabis hyperemesis, you just need to quit marijuana, and they'll be like, what are you talking about, stupid doctor? Um, Now I hear them listening um, and paying attention. I could see that. And I don't really know because I don't have a follow-up like you do, (laughs) Um, you know, whether whether it connected long-term. Right, right. Do you have a program in your hospital to refer them to? We don't. We really don't. We don't. I want to write a... Um, a quitting guideline like we have for tobacco. We don't really have that for marijuana, right? We have, um, you know, we have treatment for opiate use disorder with with Suboxone. We have medications for alcohol or therapy for alcohol. But uh, the big drug of choice these days, especially for young people, is marijuana and cannabis. And I don't think we have great quitting tools. I don't know if you do. Well, I mean, we do have, I don't know, what area of the country are you in? Or are you in UK? California, but no, I'm in California. But really, this is nationwide. Whatever we do, we can spread nationwide. Well, so there's um, MA, Marijuana Anonymous, mm-hmm. sending people to that. Um, some programs are only for cannabis, but they're few and far between. Um and then working with someone one-on-one on a weekly basis is really helpful. And those first couple of weeks, like sometimes I'll suggest to a client, you know, the first couple of weeks of detox are tough. Um, and that's where I see a lot of relapse, right? Mm-hmm. So I'd say, you know, even if you could just go in to treatment for those first two weeks, and then you you don't have it right there to pick up when you feel the craving, you're starting to get some tools once you pass that threshold, you have a lot better chance of succeeding. But it's really hard, like you were saying, those first two weeks because of the withdrawal. And that's like with alcohol, they recommend detox. And I think with marijuana, there needs to be a detox too, um, inpatient if possible, because wow. those same uh, cravings and symptoms are going to trigger someone to just use like, oh, this you know, even though they had all intent for all intent and purposes said, I'm going to quit, you know, I believe them. But then it, the rubber hits the road and like, oh, wow, forget it. It's easier said than done. Yes, much easier said than done. So when people come to you, do they need to be sober? Um, or does it does it work if they're still using? Yeah. So no, no one necessarily has to be sober. Um I would say most people are, but some people come in and they're still using. And so I'll work with them in a harm reduction model, um, you know, doing a thorough history, seeing what else is going on, because it could be a mental illness mm-hmm. in addition to substance use. Okay, then uh, we have to, you know, deal with both. And it's going to be hard for me to help you with your anxiety disorder if you're self-medicating with pot. So we need, you know, this is, and and then developing a treatment plan together. But I'm sure you've heard people say, but I need my marijuana to help with my anxiety. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know. I believe you. But let's find something that does not have such negative consequences. So there's a lot of medication that doesn't have all the downsides that marijuana does or cannabis does. Right. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is THC, especially the high potency THC, is a risk factor for psychosis and is a risk factor for schizophrenia. Um, yeah. Right. So we've seen the the studies again. Dr. Marta De Forte from UK, where um, London, Paris, Amsterdam, where they had high potency THC, and they defined it as just ten percent. And those areas had a higher incidence of permanent schizophrenia caused by yeah. high potency THC. So we're again we're creating more. Not everybody who uses marijuana is going to get schizophrenia, but it's a risk factor. And one in five will if they continue to use, you know, on a regular basis, like these high potency products. So that's scary because even when they go off of it, you know, they, I know, um, well, this is back in the day, but there were, I think there was one friend, um, you know, from doing uh, 
LSD that ended up permanently had uh, right. psychosis. Yeah. So, so many drugs can cause, you know, one-time incidents of psychosis, right? Methamphetamine, yeah. LSD. But of all the drugs, the one that ends up with a permanent conversion to chronic psychosis, schizophrenia, is marijuana. Marijuana. Yeah. Wow. So keep doing what you're doing. And I wish, actually, that parents and kids would come to you early because if they came to you early, there's a lot more hope, you know, of, of avoiding a permanent mental illness. Right. And there's a lot more that can be done, you know, but then you look at uh, the fentanyl crisis, that's a one and done drug. I mean, people using it once and then they're right. dying. So it, 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 it's it's evil because you make a mistake and, and it's your last mistake. Yes, it's and for some kids, it's their first and last. That's what's so scary. Um, there was the article in The New York Times about. Uh, this pizza delivery and then they also all ordered fentanyl with it and they all three died in different yeah. places yeah just really sad That's sam quinones's book the least of us and he was on on the high truths and uh, he talks about the supply and the readily available um uh of of drugs and the thing that makes fentanyl different is well several things makes it different is one it's so much more potent you use it once and you're dead um, and the other th thing is there are some people who have an opiate use disorder and they're seeking fentanyl. But there are other people who they thought they bought an Adderall pill to study for finals and now they're dead. That's that's to me, that's murder. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the mist, you know, you don't know exactly what you're getting. You don't. Yeah. And, and you don't when you um, again, buying the mushrooms and the marijuanas and the gummy bears or even CBD, people think, oh, well, this is just. A CBD, but we found lots of contaminants and heavy metals and other things in that as well. Unless something is has a USP seal that went through a standards products as far as buying herbal medications, you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. And that speaking of CBD, I know um, a couple of my clients and actually even one of my friends, she goes, well, there's no THC in it, so it's fine. I said, well, uh, you know, I, I so I, I'd I'd refer your friend to a couple things uh, as far as CBD is. One is just read the FDA label for Epidiolex. Just read the label so you know what you're getting. And if you read the label, it it says beware of suicidal ideations, beware of uh, liver toxicity. That's with pure CBD that we know is pure CBD, and that I could write as a prescription as Epidiolex um, um, to to patients or children who have um, very rare seizure disorders. So that, that's FDA approved. Um, yeah. Then I'd look at um, drug interactions. So if it's an elderly person using CBD, they're probably on other medications. So I would refer them to drugs.com, drug interaction checker, and see what does that really... I had a patient the other day who he was so mad because he spent so much money on his CBD and I just showed him that it didn't work with his other medicines that he's on. He was like, oh. Um, and then just, you know, if you do a search on CBD contaminants, there's no... People think the FDA is looking at these products and standardizing them and they're not. They're hands-off. They say, we did not approve and we're not monitoring these products. Yeah, and that, I mean... That's the scary part. And also that people in recovery are saying this is okay. That's where I'm really, um, you know, challenging some of my friends like, no, because like, I've looked at a couple of those websites too. Yeah. Like, I, no, that does, I don't honestly think it means you're still clean and sober, but they right. say, well, there's no THC, so I am. And, uh, but well, I, I can't I, tell I you how many people about it with the metals that are in it. And, yeah. and a know, lot of people think. They're just taking CBD. I've never seen CBD poisoning in the emergency department. But if we, I test them and I'll ask them, do you want to find out? They'll be positive for THC. So, because um, it, it's still in there. So when yeah. they come, patients come to you, how many sessions? Like, is this kind of like a cognitive behavior model? We're going to do this eight sessions and you're good. Um, it's kind of a, a cognitive behavioral, but it's more, I would say it's like what I've, uh, I'm going to kind of a guesstimate, like 20 to 26 sessions is what I'm finding. So cognitive behavioral is like 10 to 15. This is a little longer because there's more skills that you're teaching. 
and it's a more comprehensive program. CBT is part of it, but it's only part of it. There's uh, two other um, dynamics or two other therapies, therapeutic modalities. So, but on the whole, I would say clients come for 20 to 26 weeks and, you know, we fill out the paperwork before and after and most clients say they feel they've got a lot of tools and their recovery feels better or, or not emotionally. Emotional stability is like the big gift they say they get from it, that yeah. they're not so all over the place like they were, even though they're, you know, 5, 10, 15 years sober. And you mentioned, you know, the um, intersection with mental illness and substance use disorder it affected you together for, I'm sure, your clients and other people have it. Do, is it an obstacle, one for the other? Does, does uh, dialectical behavioral therapy work for both? Oh, for mental health and substance use? Most yeah. definitely. I mean, that is what, you know, so I was in the DBT group for mental health uh, because I had a, a manic break. Okay. Um, and w- the first, uh, or this, I don't know, 10th session, the therapist started out with this line, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Now I've heard that in AA for years, but for the life of me, I did not understand what they meant. Or how, how do you not suffer? They don't have that chapter. You know, the main uh, suggestion was, what was the suggestion? I think pause. I mean, there wasn't really many tools behind that. So what are some tools for that not to suffer? Yeah. So to not suffer um, is to, uh, so let's say, the of course, life, there's all different issues. Um, Okay, like this may seem like a a luxury problem, but I've been using this tool. So my daughter is trying to get into medical school. She's applying all over the country. Nothing's happening. So I'm getting very worried and anxious, even more so than she is. And I'm causing myself unnecessary suffering. So what do I do? Um, One is to look at the worry, you know, and say, okay, worrying is not getting me anywhere. So to write it down on a post-it, put it in my God box or my worry box and I'm taking my, my sticky mitts off of it. Um, we have an acronym here for it actually. Okay. Another one is uh, the um, playing it over and over it in your head. So to stop, you know, because a lot of times that rumination uh, causes more suffering I don't know if she doesn't get in. Should we do this? Should we do that? Should we go to Caribbean? I don't know, you know. um, But the rumination is not helpful. That's suffering. You know, pain is inevitable. She's not getting in. But I'm adding suffering by ruminating about it. Okay. Um, The other is, um, you know, another painful thing is sometimes talking to death about it with other people. Like, Maybe just one conversation with one friend a week and then my own therapist, but not anyone I meet on the street corner. I'm going to give you some therapy after this, uh, after this podcast. (laughs) Okay. And um, what's another one? Uh, Oh, to, um, I guess... To not be stuck there. So uh, what's a different example would be, um, you know, okay, you lost a job and just like doing Monday morning quarterback, you know, beating up on yourself, that's causing suffering. You know, DBT would say I lost the job, but the suffering is, oh, I'm so stupid. I lost this job. How could I do that? I should have done this, I, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, thou shalt not shit on thyself. So um, that's the suffering. And that was the epiphany from my book. Like, oh, my God, this would be so helpful for people in program, uh, suffering from alcohol and substance use issues. That's where the intersection came for me, because 
that saying was also mentioned a lot in the 12 step rooms. But again, there was no, you know, uh, plan or uh, effective tools to follow up with it, you know. So that's why I decided I'm going to write this book for people with alcohol and substance use disorder. I think it'd be very helpful. And I think, you know, more tools like that are helpful. You also specialize in special populations, women, LGBTQ+. Tell us a little bit about that and how um, how things are applied differently, or do they? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. For, for women, uh, the program is he, he, he all throughout. So that's also a turnoff for women, just like God everywhere is for some people. And women already feel powerless and disenfranchised uh, population. And so they struggle with the first step. You know, I'm powerless. I feel like I'm powerless even before I ever picked up a drink. Um, or some of the language, you know, like for the fourth step, where we had to get rid of our big ego. Well, for most women, their ego is not even a baseline. So a lot of those uh, descriptions are for white male, like in their 30s. And that's when, who the program was written by, and that's who initially it was for. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually went to Women for Sobriety, which is uh, Jean Kirkpatrick is the um, one who um, invented it. And I went there for a couple of years and I, the language is much more positive. And it's also, um, a gender specific group. Unfortunately, there's still sexual harassment going on in 12 step meetings that are um, both for men and women. A good friend of mine was being sexually harassed. And I just said, yeah, I just get out of that meeting. You know, that guy's, I don't, doesn't sound like he's going to stop. Um, so there's different issues there. Um, and I could tell you, I have a whole day uh, training on working with women in recovery. So there's a lot there. And then for LGBT folks, um, my second day in rehab, my counselor gave me a journal and said, I want you to write one page a night. And now I have hundreds of journals because I've kept up that practice for most of my recovery. And I said, I think I'm a lesbian. <laughs> and is the first place I wrote it and said it. And, um, you know, this is 1974, so being gay is like, you're a horrible person, you're degenerate, you're, you know, you're a lot of things, all negative. Um, and so... Well, you should never feel bad about who you are, no matter who you are, what color, right? <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, you should yeah. be proud. You should be proud of who you are regardless of your background right. and who what but that didn't really come to me till or come true for me until I was like 10 years clean and sober and part of it was a societal acceptance my family didn't accept it so that didn't help at all um and uh but the societal acceptance and you know the progress we've made I mean now I have kids who are 10 or 11 or 12 coming out I'm like wow I just can't believe that like that was, you know, unheard of back in the day. And they're proud. It's just wonderful to see. But so they struggle with still shame, even though it's more accepted to be out and be who you are. But the shame factor is uh, high. And then there's also, I mean, it used to be for gay and lesbians, our only place to meet were the bars. Now you could meet so many other places, you know, so you don't have this limited environment um but the, but yet it's interesting they should say that the place to meet was the bar and now they don't have that it's some that's helpful and yet that population is more affected with substance use disorder yes um probably 25 to 30 percent the research has shown of uh, lgbt folks the Q and the rest of the alphabet um, struggle with uh, alcohol or substance use or are diagnosed with it. Yeah. So DBT, um, great tools to handle with, you know, emotional aspects that life gives us. 
and usually applied to people who have a problem, have a substance disorder, have a mental health challenge. I'm big on prevention. How do we get next generation of Americans to stop smoking? We did that. To have less opiate use addiction to pills? We did that. What about less um, chronic psychosis and less substance use disorder in the first place? Treating kids at a young age to deal with emotional struggles with other life skills rather than going to marijuana in the first place. I'm wondering if DBT and the skills that you're describing in your book can be used in prevention before anybody even has a problem. What do you think? I, no, I'm i definitely on board with you, Renit. Um, so I do some work. I do contracting at different schools. Yeah. And... Um, they have a course called social emotional learning, but I really think it should be in every school in the country, you know, uh, a class that teaches DBT skill because kids are not taught about emotions. I so agree with you. We need yeah. that in school. This generation has more anxiety and depression, and we need that yeah. in elementary school, in middle yeah, school, yes. constantly. That's yeah, yes. Part of PE, you know. Um, okay. I know. Or what do they have? PE, and then what was the other part? Oh, health education. Yeah. Can that health education be all about teaching DBT skills yes. or emotion regulation. So you think it's it is applicable to to have? Oh, it's a hundred. I mean, they have DBT skills. There's books about DBT for kids. I do um, a group in one of the schools. Um, DBT group for middle school kids. Um, I think it's so applicable. I love that. I think we need that. I want to get, I want to promote that too, um, as well as your book. Tell us about your, you have more than one uh, book. Tell us about your books for our listeners. So DBT, a workbook for alcohol and drug addiction that came out February of this year, 2023. And it looks at, it has 12 chapters. Each chapter has two parts. The first part of the chapter looks at the step. And then the second part of the chapter has DBT skills that will help you work that step or enhance that recovery. And so I go, okay, so the first step is about powerlessness. What DBT skill is helpful here? Let's look at radical acceptance. This could really help you in terms of, because usually we have radical denial. So it's just the opposite. So teaching these skills that correlate with the different steps I have throughout that book, my book. And then the first book I wrote 19 years ago was the Anger Workbook for Women. I did my postdoc training at a psychiatry unit in Seattle, Harborview Hospital. And at that time, they only had uh, groups for men who had anger issues. But my supervisor, I hadn't thought of a topic yet. He goes, you know, we're getting a lot of calls from women needing help. Why don't you do your research there? So I said, oh, that's a great idea. And like the next day, there were the, we were on the fourth floor and the third floor was the STD unit. And this woman found out her boyfriend gave her a sexually transmitted disease. And he she started to beat him up right there. So the guard... <laughs> The guards brought her up to the fourth floor and said, okay, Dr. P, we have your first client. So that's how it, the book started because the, you know, the books back then were just geared towards men and geared towards um, just their, how they struggle with anger. And I found in my research, there's many different uh, ways that are, uh, bring up anger for women and, and how they struggle. And it's not just about power and control. Um, it's vastly different how they experience it for, for a lot of women. So we'll, we'll have the, the books in the show notes for this podcast. I want to say thank you to Kyla Emron, emergency department nurse who actually first met me through the podcast and then through working in the emergency department. So how cool is that? And so Kyla, thank you for your work and for your question and all that you do. And Dr. Laura Petrasic, thank you so much for joining us on High Truth. And what a wonderful blessing that you took, you know, uh, you know, a hard time in your life, uh, emotionally, um, with substance use, with suicidal ideations, with mental health challenges, um, 
and turned it completely around um, to a life full of hope and and hope for many others. So I really thank you for for your work, um, sharing your journey, and uh, love the idea of uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, not just for substance use disorder, not just for mental health, but also as a prevention tool that we could implement early on in life. Love that. Oh, thanks, Renee. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth's producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.